Welcome to the Archive Room podcast. This is Judith Lay inviting you to join me again in the Archive Room, Manx Radio's store of tales of island life from years gone by, told by the people who were there. This is the second in this mini-series of three programmes, looking back over some of the memories we've shared since we started digging deep into the station's archives. And because it's Boxing Day, I thought we might start with some more Christmas memories. A few years ago, well-known Manx Radio celebrity Louise Quirk made a welcome reappearance to record some Christmas-themed interviews over tea and cakes in a Laxey tea room. One of Louise's guests was the legendary entertainer Dot Tilbury. I was born and brought up in Crosby. My dad went to, uh, from the Isle of Man to World War II and um, he met my mum who was from Newcastle and he brought her back to the Isle of Man and they had a local government board house um, which were built at Crosby, Bromwich Grove and we were in number three but of course we I wasn't born then and then um, my sister was first then me then my brother Peter and Christmas times were very happy times because we didn't have lots of toys or anything like they've got now but we never felt deprived or anything, you know. We used to get the tangerine with the silver paper on yes. and uh, the usual things. But Christmas Day, we'd get up and there'd be a gift for us and a pillowcase with bits in. And then in the afternoon, we used to go down to my Auntie Doe's, who lived down in a little bungalow in the village. And she used to say, about an hour after we'd arrived, that she'd forgotten to get the milk. And she'd go out of the house, and we took no notice. We just thought she'd forgotten to get the milk. And about a quarter of an hour later, there'd be a knock on the window, and Father Christmas would be at the window. And we go, oh, it's Father Christmas. My Nana Kelly was there, and Uncle Tom, and, and my cousins, and my Uncle Eddie and Auntie Mary from Douglas, and their boys and girls, and a real scotch. I was only a little bungalow, but we all squeezed in and Father Christmas came in to give out the presents. And um, this went on for years and we just thought, you know, it's just like you'd died and gone to heaven, you know. And then one year I looked and I thought, Auntie Jo, that's a blouse. And she had like a Rupert Bear blouse on. I can still see it. It was yellow with black check. And I thought, Auntie Jo had a blouse on like that. I wonder if Father Christmas is Antidote. And I was getting a bit older and I think I just sort of sussed it out that it was Antidote that was Father Christmas. Um, but I didn't dare say anything in case I didn't get any presents. You know, great memories. My cousin Mary, who lives in Canada now, she had a piano. So a piano was like, I gravitated towards this piano and I pleaded with my mum that I wanted to go to piano lessons. And eventually I did to Mrs. Stanley Kelly in the village, and that's Brian Kelly, the vicar's mother. And she taught me and I did grades and everything. And my dad got piano from somewhere and it had four notes missing, you know, the usual yes. thing. And I think Jimmy yeah. Davidson used to come out and try and make it sort of better. But, you know, I got by and then I used to go to Eleanor Sherman. Used to go in the guild and everything, and but then you know you got to fifteen when you were doing your GCEs, yeah, you and, and they gave up. 
My ideal would have been like, you know, Wendy McDowell, Kath Blackburn, Gareth Moore. You know, they can all just sit there. They can eat a sandwich, talk and play the concerto <laughs> with the, you know, their eyes closed. And I just think, how wonderful would it be to be like, you know, it's just such a huge talent. Dot Tilbury, so appreciative of the talents of others. But what about her own talent? From an early age, she longed to join the Crosby Youth Club, thrilled to have even the smallest role in the annual pantomime. And she took part in every I Steadford. But while she loved being on stage, the young Dot seemed never to have any idea that, in her own words, she could be funny. And anyway, there was a living to be earned. When I left school, I went to work in London in the swing in 60s, you know, because I thought that's the place to go. And I got a job in Harrods Toy Department. I worked in the Toy Inquiry Office and there was like about 40 people in a big room and it was all very prim and proper and I was Miss Kelly. And uh, anyway, this woman phoned up one day and she said, I want to speak to the girl with a funny accent. <laughs> so I put my hand over the phone and I said, she wants to speak to the girl with a funny accent. And they all went, that's you. So that was when I was conscious that I sort of had an accent. The toy department at Christmas was where all the people who were on the telly went on a Saturday afternoon. And I can remember I served Scylla Black and Sid James, Spike Milligan, wow. you know, all these names. The Queen used to come in early in the morning. They used to close the shop for the Queen to come round. I was sort of in charge of the toy inquiry office eventually. I came back from lunch one day and this lady was standing there and I thought, oh, I recognise that lady. And she was talking to a very old, not very old, but she seemed old to me, Miss Dyer. She was in charge of stocking filler department and uh, this lady had brought back a toy and she'd said to her, who do you think you are bringing this toy back at this time? It's March now and have you got your receipt? And it was the Duchess of Kent. And I said to, oh I said to Miss Dye, I said, it's all right, I'll deal with this now. And you, you know, you went and got the buyer and he sort of sorted her out. But it was just a great atmosphere. It was expanded for Christmas, of course. And then after Christmas, where the, the expansion had taken place was the fashion show. They used to do a spring and autumn collection and the fashion shows were just amazing, you know. The ladies who lunch would be there and these top models and there would be music. I mean, it was so cutting edge. And I used to sit and watch the fashion show, you know, in my coffee breaks. I used to go in just to watch the fashion show. I was there about five years and, uh, you know, it, it's always difficult coming back into the island, I, I think, because you don't want to come back and be the big I am. So I thought, well, you know, what shall I do? And I thought, well, I'll go to the Braid of Steadford and try and get the vibes from the Braid of Steadford. Anyway, I thought, I'll learn a poem, and I got one of my Auntie Doe's poems out. And um, I think it was the Peel Tate fight, actually. And um, I, st I sort of learnt it. But it was at the time when you had to lie in the bed to put your jeans on oh, yes. because they were so oh, tight. Yes. And um, I had my words down my jeans and I forgot the words and I thought, oh, no. And Ian Qualtra was the adjudicator. And I pulled out the words and they sort of ripped as I was pulling them out of my trousers. And in the remarks after he got up and he said, then we've got Miss Kelly up on the stage he said, and she tried to pull the words out of her knickers and, <laughs> and she made a right rock of it. So at that point, I thought, you know, because that got a laugh with Ian and I didn't know Ian from Adam. And then 
I thought, well, if I make poems up, then I can just read them so I won't have to learn them. And that was bizarre thinking behind that. And that's when I started to write poems about topical things that were going on and, and they seemed to go down well. And then the rest is sort of history. But, you know, I got to know Ian very well. And I went down to his house one day and he showed me, he had a very old um, DVD of the ventriloquist act that he used to do oh, with Walter yes. Collister. Walter was a teacher at Castle Russian and Walter was a ventriloquist and Ian was the ventriloquist dummy and he showed me and he never said a word and he said do you reckon you can do that and I said what the ventriloquist and he said yeah I said I'll give it a go and I mean that was such an iconic you know twosome and, you know, it was never the same twice. And Ian would forget his words and we'd be rolling around the stage. And, you know, I used to have to be sort of telling him the word, lines and everything. But it was just hilarious. He just was so funny. I think he could have made it professional. He did want to. He told me once in a sort of a weak moment, he said, I might like to have done this professionally. But, of course, he said with the family business, mm, he, he said he couldn't do it. But I think he... You know, he was a real touch of the Spike Milligans or the Tommy Coopers. You know, yes. he had a touch of that about him. And this is surely the perfect moment to remind ourselves of Ian Qualtro's unique talent. Here, recalling a family member and one of the many characters he remembers from a lifetime spent in the south of the island. I had an aunt, Maze, and she'd been a school teacher in Liverpool 40 years in the one school from 20 to 60. She taught seven-year-old and eight-year-old boys. Must have driven a cracker, she, but she was the most patient person. There. And she was a chain smoker. And of course, when she'd go out of the classroom at four o'clock, there'd be a cigarette in her mouth, but she never smoked outside. It was always at home. And if she went to anybody's house, she didn't need a cigarette, and yet at home she would make up for it. Well, my mother lived here at Howingren, and she had an Arga cooker. And Aunt May had an electric cooker, and she said to me one day, your mother's kitchen is not like mine. My walls are all oily, and your mother's kitchen with the Arga is not oily at all. And I said, it's nicotine. No, it's not. It's not nicotine. She said, it's the arger. The arger doesn't make this oiliness. It's the electric cooker, she was saying. And then I said, well, of course, the electric is made by oil. Over in peel, it must be coming through the wires. That's it, she said. And she was telling me one time about... She was going home from school, and a car drew up. And this fellow said to her, would you like a lift, Miss Qualtrough? And she said, it's Billy, little Billy. And she said, my word, how have you got a Rolls Royce, Billy? Billy was driving this Rolls Royce. Well, he said, I've got a candy floss stall in Blackpool now. She said he was as thick as a hedge. He couldn't add two and two together. And there he was with a Rolls Royce and candy floss. She said, and I'm dragging along teaching. <laughs> and there was a fellow around here. We'll call him Fred. So nobody could be sort of upset. But Fred, Fred's son went off to the war and he had a brand new push bike. Once the son had gone, he pinched the bike and 
he was going to work up towards uh, Malou, and every morning he would cycle on the bike. Well, after a month or two, the tyres went flat. And after a month or two more, the tyres just wore away. And he would go to work every morning about 7 o'clock up through Malou Street on this old bicycle with no tyres, on, just on the rims. <laughs> And people are still living in Blue Street who will confirm this. And they're saying, it would wake them all up going up the road. Well, not only did did he wake them up with the tyres, but he was stone deaf and he was talking to himself. And as he was going along and working in the fields on the farm, he'd be swearing and talking about the boss and everybody knew what he thought about the boss, and the boss knew as well. But he didn't worry because this poor old soul just worked on and on and on. In past times on the island, the Christmas period was known as the Foolish Fortnight, beginning on Black Thomas's Eve, the 21st of December, and ending on the Old Christmas Day, the 6th of January. The Foolish Fortnight was, much like today, a time for socialising, eating, music and dancing. It was also a time for Manx customs, and who better to talk about them than Mona Douglas? Let's eavesdrop on a conversation between Mona and David Collister, talking here about customs associated with the old Christmas Day, January the 6th. Another thing is connected, I think, with the old Manx name of the day, Shan Le Chibatoshche, the old day of the water well, because there were an awful lot, as you probably know, of what were called healing wells in the island. They're mostly supposed to be dedicated to Christian saints now, but I think they go a long way further back than Christianity, and the old idea would be that either the well itself or the spirit of the well would do the healing, but anyway, they still call them healing wells, and on that morning, the morning of the 6th, it was the right day to go to the well, and they always said it was for sore eyes. It could be for any kind of... uh, physical trouble I suppose Mm. but uh, they always said it was for sore eyes and you were supposed to go to the nearest healing well and bathe your eyes in the water and make some little offering to the well it was generally a small coin like a penny or something like that and some of the wells you can see still have things lying in them that have been thrown in for offerings I think if there was healing it was probably what we should now call faith healing they didn't have the term in those days Another very old Celtic thing, fire was supposed to be a very magical thing in the old Celtic tradition, and there was firm belief that on the first day of uh, Christmas, the 6th of January, old Christmas Day, the, the beginning of the new year, you shouldn't give away any fire. Well, now, fire, in the days when this was commonly believed would be the old peat fire of the hearth. And it used to be a thing sometimes with people in the country. I know I can remember that even on the Balaric when I was a child. If the fire went out, they would go to somebody else's house for a sod to start it up again. But on 6th of January, the old Christmas day, you were not supposed to give the fire at all. If you let the person that wanted it have it, 
well, you had to charge them something for it if it was only a penny. If it was bought, it was all right, but you mustn't give away fire on that day. Now, the fishermen used to have a lot of superstitions in the Isle of Man, didn't they? Did they have anything involved with Christmas? Oh, yes, they had the boat supper on the 6th of January. That was an old Celtic play which Dr Clegg recorded, Dr Clegg of Castletown, the famous man who collected so many of the folk tunes for us. He's got the whole thing noted down in Manx and in English in his Manx reminiscences. It was a re-enacting of the engagement and preparation of the crew to go away for the fishing. And they used to do this on land then? Oh yes, just imitation. But they used to do the actions and everything of throwing the nets and and hauling up the sails and everything. It It was a real play. So under this old system then, the old Christmas, there wouldn't have been a twelfth night, would there? No, but the 6th was always the last day of the Christmas holidays. They didn't have anything corresponding to Boxing Day. The only thing they had was, they called it St Stephen's Day, and they still call it that round here very often. They had the Hunt the Run coming round on St Stephen's morning, but um, on the 6th itself... It was the final jollification of Christmas Day and it was the big gints of the winter. Everybody went to it and there was all sorts of jollifications. They generally went to a pub for it because very few of the houses had even a barn big enough to take all the people. Mm. And they used to appoint somebody that they called a manchester or master of ceremonies and he had to appoint what they called legates. That was... Valentines or people that were paired off together for the gints itself and the man had to pay for the woman's supper or whatever they had. Then the proclamation went on that they can their legates for tonight and for further longer as they wish, you see. And some of them reckoned that it would be sweethearts for the year mm. sort of thing. Mm. And it's a funny thing, but the tune in the Banks National Songbook that is now known as the Fisherman's Evening Hymn, not the words, of course, but the tune of it uh, was uh, fitted to words by which the Manchester appointed the legates for this particular ginst. And you'll see the name, the Wanks name of it on the title of the of the song in the Manx National Songbook, Eshuas Clashton. Eshuas Clashton, as gow shoot has them I Listen and hear and take good heed. And then he made the proclamation of what these people were to do, you see, all in Manx, of course. And uh, that was the beginning of the Gints. But it's funny that it should now be reckoned a, a hymn tune. Yeah. <laughs> because yes. it was rather a ribald thing, you see. Mona Douglas discussing with David Collister some of the customs associated with Old Christmas Day, January the 6th. I've always been fascinated by the story of the Dolby spook. Did a talking mongoose really live with Jim and Margaret Irving and their daughter Vori at the isolated farmhouse Dulish Cashin in Dolby in the 1930s? Many local people and even newspaper reporters and ghost hunters from across went to the farmhouse. And some did hear a voice, but no one actually ever met Jeff. There's no doubt that Vori Irving is the key to this legend with her gifts as a storyteller, giving the latest news of Jeff the Mongoose to her friends at Patrick's school. But did she have natural skills as a ventriloquist? Could she really throw her voice? 
Kathleen Green, who was born Kathleen Christian in Dalby in January 1912, shared some very definite views when she chatted some years ago with David Collister. There was no such a thing. I'll tell you why we could prove it. When the mongoose was about, all the young people from Peel and over were coming up, you know. Every night when it was nice and fine, you all went up to see the spook. There was nothing there, you know. Only young people all fooling about, you know. And <laughs> Did you go to see the spook? Yes, regular. I don't know what he was supposed to be like. I couldn't tell you what we're supposed to see. You never saw a mongoose? Oh, no, no. One night after it was all gone quiet, there were three girls of us decided we would go up and see what the spook about. It was a lovely moonlight night. So we went from the bottom of Glen May Hill up a little lane to the house. Now, oh. you, you could climb up onto the roof easy enough. And we got up there. There wasn't a soul about. So we went round to the gable. There was a window in the gable of the house. So we listened in there. The three of us were listening in there. And the two women were in the house, Mrs Irvin and Bobby. And laughing, you know, having their own sort of fun, you know. Yeah. Anyway, the next salute, we heard Mrs Irvin singing Jerusalem the Golden. It must have been me, I think, that laughed out loud. <laughs> and we heard Vary say, Hush, mother, there's somebody about. So we three went straight away round, knocked at the door. Yeah. We've come to see the spook. <laughs> oh, he's just been out. Oh, has he? Yes. Uh, Willie Quirk's sister was the uh-huh. talker. She said, what was he doing? He was singing Jerusalem the Golden. <laughs> well, I was sitting up near the fire, a good job I was. And the other two girls were sitting further back. Uh-huh. So we sat there, and we sat, and Mrs Irvin was sitting in a rocking chair, and she was pushing the rocking chair back mm. and just touching the wall with it. Mm. And she said, there he is, he's uh, about, he's about enough. And there's those three fools sitting there, you know. <laughs> then a, a, a bit later on, she'd push her foot along the line, oh, he's still about. Yes, he'll be out any time now. <laughs> well, we sat and we sat. <laughs> and he didn't come. Very, she was with us, like, if, if she'd go out on the porch, maybe he'll come then, you know. But she went out, no. Nothing at all. So we waited there for a good long time. And then we got fed up. We said, well, we better be going home. So we set off down the lane. And we were all walking single, because only a little narrow lane, you know. Wanda shout, did you see her moving her feet? Yes, I did. <laughs> did you see her doing something else? Yes, we did. <laughs> yes. So I said, well, that was proof enough that there was no such a thing. People have told me that Vori used to throw her voice she could. A, a, as a, like a ventriloquist. She could. Yeah. Because I've heard her, when she was going to school, throwing her voice up the field and shouting like a cat. Really? Yeah. And I know my cousin Anne said that she's been in the schoolyard and hearing voices coming out of the church and she was terrified. It was a big hoax, was it? Oh, an absolute hoax. So she's never wanted to talk about it since, has she? Oh, no. Oh, no. She had her sister away, and she went away to look after her. 
the Irvings left the Isle of Man for the UK in 1937 and Dawlish was taken over by a farmer named Graham. In 1947, Graham trapped and killed an unusual animal, which was neither stoat, weasel or ferret. Was it Jeff? In time, Dawlish Cashin was left empty. It fell into disrepair and was eventually demolished. So maybe the best last words on the subject are from Kathleen Green. But it was awful good fun. While it lasted, it was really good fun, you know. And that's where we have to close the archive room door for today. But not for long, because I'll be back with part three at noon on Thursday with stories of childhood, holiday makers, interesting pets and a police chase. And I do hope you can join me then. This is Judith saying thank you for listening and I wish you a very happy Boxing Day. (laughs) 